Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Michael Shermer. Michael Shermer is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, the host of The Michael Shermer Show, and a presidential fellow at Chapman University where he teaches Skepticism 101. For 18 years, he was a monthly columnist for Scientific American. He's the author of New York Times bestsellers, Why People Believe Weird Things and the Believing Brain, Why Darwin Matters, The Science of Good and Evil, The Moral Arc, Heavens on Earth, and Giving the Devil His Due, which is the subject of today's podcast. Michael and I talk about the declining relevance of Christianity on the political landscape today. We talk about threats to free speech. We talk about QAnon. We talk about conspiracy theories and why people believe them. We talk about the one conspiracy theory I do believe. We talk about laws that would ban the teaching of critical race theory in schools and much more. Once again, my own incompetence with my new camera led to the video quality being less than ideal on this one, so forgive me again, but hopefully it's not too bad. So without further ado, Dr. Michael Shermer. Michael Shermer, thanks so much for coming on my show. Oh, nice to see you. Thanks for having me. I think the last time we saw each other was at uh, that Quillette party in Toronto. Yeah, that must have been, what, 2019? Something like that? Yeah, in the before time, as I'm calling it now, yeah, no, <laughs> instead good, of the, yeah. the after time. Yeah, BC, <laughs> BC before Corona. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, um, I think the, the first thing I read of yours was The Moral Arc, um, the book from from years ago. When was that published? That was 2015, the original 2015. cover here. Yeah. 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 I have a little, I have a picture of Galileo there schooling the uh, church fathers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was 2015. And, um, you know, what, so most of the data I had in that I collected in 2014, you know, and it's all pretty positive in terms of race relations and so forth. And boy, things have taken a turn in the wrong direction since then, at mm. least in terms of, you know, the, the kind of anti racism movement or, however you want to characterize it. So it seems like I'm fighting this battle all over again of trying to convince people that things are really quite good, comparatively speaking, over the decades and centuries in terms of race and gender and so on. But if you just listen to the current events, you'd think things had never been so bad in America. Yeah, and that, that might be a good place to start. Uh, you, you've been, along with people like Steven Pinker, who, who you dedicated your most recent book to, and we'll, we'll talk about that book as well. I think. But both you and I have been part of a cast of characters that are inclined towards not optimism in the sense of sort of always looking at only the good of things, but empirical optimism about actually how good it is to be alive right now, how much progress humanity has made over the past uh, decades. And this is obviously a very controversial argument. I think most of that controversy has uh, fallen on on Pinker for for his book Enlightenment Now, and I had him on the podcast uh, several months ago. But your book, The Moral Arc, is in that vein, and you you have a lot of a, a, so many different books. It's sort of hard to know where to start or what to talk about with you because you have books uh, talking about skepticism and rationality. You have books about sort of conspiracy thinking and, or at least one of your book touches on that topic, which I find interesting and free speech and yeah. then older stuff about Holocaust deniers. And you've been sort of all over the place. So I guess a good place to start would be sort of what you, what you were just sort of talking about. What do you see right now in the landscape as regards attacks on rationality and free speech and the principles you've devoted many books and, and your work at skeptic magazine to. Yeah. I'd say the common theme tying all those different books together and throughout my entire working career has just been the search for truth. That is what's, what's objectively empirically true and how can we contrast that with say religious truths or political truths or literary artistic truths 
you know, which, which we evaluate claims for differently. So part of the problem that we, we, we just touched on is this kind of binary thinking that things are either great or they're terrible. Things are, uh, you know, e- either human nature is good or it's evil, or America is either, either this, you know, racist cesspool or it's this, you know, perfect utopian of equal uh, equality between the races. You know, of co- course, not, none of which is true. You know, it's a continuum. And so to pinpoint where on the continuum we are, you need data. And it, you can say at once and the same that things are better than they've ever been and they're far from perfect. And so one of my objections to this, this kind of binary thinking where, say, the anti-racism movement wants to say, you know, systemic racism is rampant and it, it's in all our institutions and so on, is that there's nothing to do about that. It's like, well, where, where's the problem exactly that we can solve? Because in the you know centuries-long arc of the moral universe, it's bending because people solve very specific problems. Like we should abolish torture, we should abolish slavery, we should expand the franchise to include blacks and women in America, and on and on and on. Very specific things. And so when you hear these things like. Well, everybody has to go through sensitivity training because pretty much everyone in America is a racist. It's a complete waste of time because most people are not racist. And so you're capturing the the few percentage of you know racist assholes that are still out there in your net by you're hoping to capture them by putting everybody through these sensitivity training, say. So like the Starbucks example, remember, I don't know, it's two years ago now or something where a couple African Americans w- went in to use the restroom and they were standing around or whatever. And the manager called the police and okay. So, you know, the next thing, you know, Starbucks closes for 24 hours and all 700,000 employees have to go through this sensitivity training. How about just pinpoint that person right there, the manager right there. That was the problem, not the Starbucks in a city a thousand miles away that whatever, you know, that, that, that's one troublesome thing. The other thread though, is that, I think we can draw conclusions about not just whether Bigfoot's real or not, or whether aliens have come to earth, you know, the kind of standard skeptic stuff. That's kind of the fringy elements. Uh, Really, it's the same principle. How do you know anything is true? And so the moment you uh, start thinking about that, you think, well, there is a, a way to find out science. And so can we apply scientific thinking and reasoning and empirical evidence and falsification and Bayesian reasoning and on and on to everything, you know, not, not just, you know, this claim or that claim, but everything. So that's been my, my life's work to try to do that to everything. So, you know, the latest projects are, you know, can you tell the difference between right and wrong, moral and immoral using facts and reason? And I I argue you can, at least in some cases. Mm. So it seems to me, I wonder if you share this perception. It seems to me in the Bush era and the early Obama era, one of the biggest threats in the culture to the rational pursuit of truth came from the Christian right and the, the um, just the influence of Christianity in politics. Uh, you know, when we had George Bush, you know, talking strangely similarly to the Islamic theocrats we were fighting against, but with a Christian inflection. But it seems in the past five or 10 years, I've seen Christianity and politics seem less salient than it did in in the Bush era and early Obama era, so that the attacks on rationality increasingly come from just other places, right? And then there's on the left, obviously, there's identity politics and the the sort of critical race theory notion that rationality is not a human value but a white value and often simply an excuse to find, to, to justify the status quo in which black people are held down. And then on the right, there's, you know, there's on the far right, there's QAnon and just conspiracy nonsense. But I, I wonder if, if you as someone who's been very prominent in the skeptic and atheist community have noticed the decreasing salience of, of Christianity or if that's, uh, or if you disagree. Yeah, well, I guess most prominently in the areas that I used to deal with, like the teaching of creationism in mm-hmm. in uh, public schools, for example, or the 
blatant attempts by the religious right to influence politics, that's changed. That's waned a bit. But the people who track this stuff through polling data and and other uh, examples say that the influence of Christian right is is as strong as ever. But it's it's more subtle. It's more bottom up. It's more you know local, and you wouldn't see it on a say a national media level. So organize prayer groups, for example, in which the local politician, the mayor, person running for senator or Congress or the governor. And so they go to these prayer meetings and those people there end up making donations to their party and so forth. That that kind of thing happens largely under the national radar. It still goes on a lot. So when I was in college, they say roughly your age, you know, that was just beginning say, when the religious right, the moral majority started in the late 70s, early 80s, and then Reagan became president. There, there it was quite public. You know, you could see it. And so that all that changed with Obama. I mean, W was pretty religious. And uh, I mean, he found God when, you know, he was an alcoholic and his wife threatened to, to take, take the kids and leave him. And he said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go find God and, and, and get rid of the alcohol problem. So he did. Okay. Um, but after that, you know, Obama, of course, he's religious, although a lot of my atheist friends insist that he, he's only mouthing the words, but I don't think so. I think he, I think he's a true believer, but not publicly so, not politically. They, I think the influence of the religious right on politics in the Obama era was was greatly decreased. And then, of course, Trump is the anomalous person of all. Eighty four percent of white Christians, white evangelicals voted for Trump. And almost as many in 2016 and almost many in 2020, it's just stunning because at least the people that they have historically backed were really religious. They really were evangelicals. They really believed in God. They really went to church. It seemed like they had the courage of their convictions religiously. Trump is, you know, nothing. He's, he's like the least religious person ever. And, and, and the opposite of that. I mean, he's like he like violates every Christian principle there is. And so um, last fall, I had a debate with Dinesh D'Souza, the public, pretty public intellectual, uh, conservative Christian, and uh, at a church. And so I asked him and everybody in the church, how can you back Trump? This guy is like the least, you know, for every, he goes against everything you guys stand for. And their response was kind of an eye-opening. Uh, well, he he's pro-life and none of the previous Republican presidents we've had were really pro-life. They didn't do anything about abortion. You know, Trump at least wants to do some appointing judges, Supreme Court judges, but also all the local judges, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of them. He's supporting politicians that are pro-life and pro-Christian. And, and, and that the, the final one was, well, you know, God works in mysterious ways. <laughs> you know, he picks flawed characters in the Bible. Look at some of the, the, the characters in the Bible. I mean, these are just crazy people or flawed people, immoral people. And yet they still deliver the message of God. And maybe Trump's like that. Okay. Well, it remains to be seen if they'll stick by Trump now that he's out. But, um, you know, that to me was a, a quite, quite a change from the religious rights, normal operations. To me, it showed me that it really is more politics than it is religion, mm-hmm. or at least politics in the service of religion right. to, in the long run, get your, your, your judges and your, and your laws enacted. Yeah. I mean, I have to imagine people when push comes to shove, could not actually believe that he was a Christian deep down. There's just, he, he has too much of a public record of having sex with models and just, you know, just being the type of person that is just so obviously almost trying to signal how unchristian he is, right? Like he wants you to know how fully he's not living by the principles of chaste, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And honesty. And honesty, yeah. Integrity. Right. Yeah, all those things. Well, so Coleman, I think one thing we might parse here is what it means to believe in something or support something. Like QAnon, you know, this is our last issue of Skeptic. Oh, yeah. You know, this, the, the idea that there's a satanic cult of pedophiles led by Hillary Clinton uh, molesting children in, in pizzerias. I mean, this is so insane, so stupid, so crazy. No one could possibly believe it. So when you have 29% of Republicans that polled two weeks ago report, they think there's maybe something to it. They can't possibly really believe that. So when they're, they're operating not at an objective truth, empirical truth level, there really are pedophiles really doing these things in a pizzeria. 
Hillary's really involved. No, I think it's more of a political belief. That is, I'm signaling that I am committed to our position, our tribe, our leader, almost like a cult. The crazier it is, the more virtuous my signal is by saying I, I commit to it. And I think maybe that also explains Trump. You know, no matter how crazy he got, as he himself said, he could shoot somebody on Broadway and he'd still have his supporters. Okay, what is that saying? That's saying that that's a different kind of truth, sort of a political tribal truth, you might call it. I think a point you made there in passing is one I find very interesting. You said the crazier it is, the more virtuous a signal it is. And I think that's a very deep point about how tribalism works in general, which is if you, if you just reimagine, if you abstract away from the actual propositional content of the claim that you believe in QAnon or whatever the claim is, and just think of it almost as an evolutionary psychologist or, or as a, a biologist would think about the way a peacock's feathers, like what a peacock's feathers do. The utterance you're, you're making at some level operates as a proof of how loyal to, you are to a particular tribe that you were arbitrarily born into or, or whatever. And the dumber the utterance, the more crazy the utterance, the more embarrassing the utterance to outside tribes, that's the key part, the more embarrassing your utterance is to other tribes, the, the, the deeper you are signaling your attachment to your own tribe. Because you're saying that you're willing to pay a deep reputational price vis-a-vis the rest of the world in order to show how much you care about your tribe and your tribe only. And none of this ha- has to be happening at a conscious level. It's like, this is not Machiavellian and this is just, in some sense, how we're wired, right? It's, it's all mediated sort of through emotion and gut feelings and, and so forth. And I, I just, I think that that's something I think about pretty often. At the same time, there are true believers, certainly in, in QAnon, uh, no doubt. Yeah, that's right. There are. But again, if you think about religious truths, like say the resurrection and that Jesus died for our sins, came back to life and so on. Now, some of that story you can put in the bin of historical truths that could be empirical. We could you know, come to some consensus among historians about whether someone named Jesus of Nazareth actually lived and whether he was crucified. You know, Romans crucified practically everybody. And uh, so, yeah, okay. Um, you know, most, most theologians and historians of religion say that that part is probably true. Now, did he come back from the dead after three days of being dead? Okay, resurrection. Well, there, you know, I, I've calculated it at 100 billion to one of the odds of that happening. Since 100 billion people lived and died, not one has come back from the dead, except for maybe one if you're a Christian. So you can put a kind of a Bayesian calculation on it and then ask, you know, with the principle, the ECRI principle, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So you have the most extraordinary claim of all time, 100 billion to one. How extraordinary is the evidence? It's not. It's not even ordinary. It's, it's pretty crummy. So, but people don't believe it for that reason. In a way, it's this kind of signaling, I'm a Christian. That's what I believe. If I didn't believe the resurrection, I wouldn't be a Christian. I'd be a Jew or Muslim or whatever. And, you know, so I, I think, and my favorite story of that is being at a conference with Richard Dawkins and, and Ken Miller. Ken Miller, everyone knows who Dawkins is, but Ken Miller is a world-class uh, biologist. He has one of the most popular textbooks of biology. He was the definitive debunker of intelligent design creationism. He wrote a brilliant book explaining why evolution is true and on and on and on. The last chapter of his book, though, he defends Catholicism and the, and the resurrection. Jesus died for our sins, why he believes it. And uh, I remember Dawkins saying something like, you know, Ken, if we found a piece of the true cross and on a piece of the true cross was a little bit of flesh and we could extract some of Jesus's DNA. You know, and he was supposedly born of a virgin. Right. So would his DNA be different from your and mine? And, you know. And Ken just stopped him and said, Richard, I'm not saying this is true. This is just what I believe. I'm a Catholic. This is, our, this is what we believe. Full stop. It's like, okay. So they're really talking at two different levels, kind of empirical truth. Is it really true? Did the resurrection really happen? Or is it more kind of religiously true or mythically true? You know, Jordan Peterson talks like this, like uh, whether it happened or not, it's kind of irrelevant. The story of being born again, starting over. You know, an oppressed people being resurrected by overthrowing the chains of their oppressors, Jews being oppressed by Romans, say, 
and on and on. And then you can apply the principle to your personal life. I'm going to be born again every day. I'm going to start over. I'm going to, you know, apologize to people I've sinned against and, and find forgiveness and be forgiving and live the kind of the life of Jesus, whether it happened or not, it could be entirely made up. And there's still a, a truth there, a kind of a literary truth touching on human nature, something like that. And so there, I think we're talking at two different kinds of uh, truths. Uh, Shelby Steele, who I had on my podcast a few months ago, has this notion of a poetic truth, which I think is a phrase that I like. And he was using it to refer to the idea that in Ferguson, Michael Brown died with his hands up saying, hands up, don't shoot, which is, has been you know, debunked every which way by the witnesses of the event and by the report uh, by Eric Holder and so forth. But the notion is, is it's just a poetic truth. It's not literally true, but it's, it's something that gives people meaning, gives people a story that makes them feel that they are a part of something larger than themselves, that they have something to fight for. And this, is, this kind of thing is, is ubiquitous. It's not just religion, it's politics, it's, it's everything. And yet there's always, I think a lot of what your work deals with is that there's always this sort of gadfly. There's a gadfly going back to Socrates saying, is this stuff actually true? And doesn't it matter if it's actually true? Like, aren't, aren't we, doesn't it matter that we're actually in contact with reality? Is improving humanity and just creating a better world simply a matter of telling more and more compelling stories that might be true? Or is it a matter of getting closer to the truth and finding, finding reasons to make all of those kind of improvements you mentioned, so, such as, you know, you know, George W., you know, getting over his alcoholism and, and so forth, finding reasons to do those things that don't require fairy tales. Yeah, I get the idea of poetic truth. I understand why that motivates people. It's like the message that Pinker and I have you know, if you put in a slogan, you know, what do we want? Slow, gradual change through legal measures. When do we want it? Eventually, over a long period of time. It's just, it's just not exciting. Right? You know, the poetic truth, you know, America's a racist cesspool and, and the police are all are all bigots. So let's defund the police and overthrow them and get out there and march. That has kind of an appeal to motivate people you know, like in, in, in network news, you know, to, to put your head out the window and say, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. You know, pe that, that motivates people, right? It, you saw this not only with the Antifa movement and Black Lives Matter movement, some of it in Portland and Seattle, but also on January 6th at the Capitol. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people went there because they, they think the boss said to come down there and do something. And he didn't have to say exactly what to do. He could even say, you know, we're going to go down there and be peaceful which he said after an hour of, you know, rabble rousing to fight like hell and, and don't let them steal your country. And of course, by then, you know, they were fired up and, and you could see the people in those videos walking around. They just look like, Oh my God, I can't believe what we're doing. This is, this is our 1776 moment. They're thinking I'm Hamilton and Adams and Jefferson. Oh my God. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's just not how it happens anymore. I mean, again, changes, most of the good change is done non nonviolently, very peacefully through legal measures, you know, and, and that Dr. King and Gandhi show that that's the best way to do it, but it's not exciting. It's not romantic. It just takes yeah. a long time. Yeah, I did. I do want to circle back to QAnon actually, because this is, uh, I, don't, I don't think I've ever had the chance to talk about QAnon at length with anyone on the podcast, but you seem like maybe the perfect person to, to sort of talk about this with. I hadn't seen that Skeptic Magazine had published something on QAnon. Did you write that or, or was that somebody else? We have two articles, one by me, one by Dan Loxton, our, one of my editors uh, who researched it pretty carefully. We show that it's really, it's a very old conspiracy, actually it has elements of past conspiracies, including the kind of recovered memory movement in the 90s, the satanic panic of the 80s, uh, that kind of white nationalism of the 50s and 60s, pushing back against the civil rights movement, all the way back to, um, you know, the, the protocols of the elders of Zion, how they were going to, the Jews were going to take over the world. There's a strong anti-Semitic element to the conspiracy theory. Um, you know, the Jews are doing this and that. And even back to the blood libel. You know, we're going to drink the blood of children. You know, this, this goes back centuries. 
of Christians um, thinking this about Jews, and that led to many European pogroms over the centuries. So, you know, it's kind of a, 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 a global conspiracy theory with a lot of elements of old conspiracy theories in it. And, uh, and, and then there's, there's, you have this kind of patternicity and confirmation bias where, where people are just looking for any kind of connect the dots patterns. And then even like Trump's little typos in his tweets or his, he, you know, he would, I think maybe accidentally, but maybe on purpose, he would say things like he, he would throw a cue in, in at the front of a word, like quinspiracy or something. I forget the example that they used for that, but just enough that they think, you know, Hey, he, he really is involved in all fighting against uh, the deep state and all this stuff. Just enough to, I think, fuel the, uh, the idea that it, it, something like that could be true. But again, back to this kind of poetic truth or mythic truth, even if I showed PQ believers, which I have, that there is no conspiracy, that the one guy who really believed it and acted on his courage of his convictions was the guy that went to the Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in Washington, D.C. with his gun. And he's like, where's the basement? And they go, there's no basement here. He's like, what? And then he, he shoots a couple bullets into the, in the ceiling. No one was hurt. He was arrested. You know, he went there to, to break up the pedophile ring, which, uh, which is kind of a rational thing to do if you think there's a crime unfolding right before our eyes and no one's doing anything about it. Yeah. I'm going to do something about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think for the average person, it just represents it's mythic. It represents something else. Like I don't trust the government. I don't trust the state. I don't trust politicians. They're lying, cheating uh, bastards. And, and I'm going to do something about it. And Q is giving us some cute clues or whatever, whatever it is. It doesn't really matter what it is. So that, I think that would be an example. Q is a kind of an example of poetic mythic truth that stands for something much like, you know, but the BLM movement and you pointed out, well, but you know, the, the actual number of police encounters with African-Americans is pretty low. How many are actually shot? It's, it's very numbers, two digit number uh, each year. It's just, just nothing compared say 50 years ago or whatever. And, race relations are better. Most police are not right. That, that's not, they're not operating at that empirical level. They, they, they don't want to know the numbers. You know, what, what's the actual number? What actually happened in Ferguson? At this point, as Shelby points out, that's irrelevant. They're operating at this other mythic poetic level. Like, and I think that's the problem. And the solution is what you just said is like, what's true really matters. Because if it's not true that most police are racist, then there's no reason to defund the police. If there are racist police officers, people that should never have a badge and a gun, go stop them. If it's that department right there in that city, that precinct of that city, do something right there. Mm. It's like what bothered me about that letter that Princeton University released, I don't know, six months ago or whatever, saying, well, we're complicit in the systemic racism. You know, we've been doing terrible things here on campus and, you know, we got to be much better people. And then the Trump administration said, oh, yeah. What did you do exactly? Because it's probably illegal and we're going to charge you and, yeah. and remove federal funding for violations of civil rights and Title IX and so on. And they're like, oh, well, no, no, we didn't actually do anything specific. We just mean we're kind of generically, systemically <laughs> guilty of racism like everybody else. It's like, yeah, OK. And of course, you know, that's where the rubber meets the road is like, how do you solve that particular problem? It's like now with this shooting last week of the. Asian massage parlor women, you know, six of the eight, I guess, were Asian women. And was this racially motivated or not? Well, we don't know, but okay, let's assume it is. Let's say this guy did, he didn't just like, dislike women. He disliked Asian women. Okay. Let's say that's the case. You know, now we're going to go through this while well, everybody has to go through sensitivity training, me and you and everybody, because this one nut job, well, maybe it's just the one nut job and maybe there's 10 of him in America or whatever the number is. It's not 340 million Americans are anti-Asian, so we all have to go through sensitivity training. Complete waste of time, waste of money. And if anything, it'll have a backfire effect. People will just resent it and think, well, okay, maybe I'll just be a racist asshole then if you're going to keep accusing me of that. <laughs> so anyway, I'm kind of sidetracked there. On, uh, but the QAnon thing, again, this is a real test of, of the motivation behind conspiracism is that, again, it's kind of signaling a distrust of something like anti-vaxxers. They distrust big corporate and big pharma, big corporations, money-making mm -hmm. organizations, yeah. or on the other side, they distrust the government. 
And, um, you know, anti-GMO, that's largely anti-Monsanto. I mean, you can pinpoint it to an actual company that they don't like. Or anti-nuclear, I don't trust scientists, I don't trust technology, you know, one disaster, you know, like Chernobyl, okay. And then, uh, you know, on the other side, climate deniers, they don't trust the government and science organizations or scientists themselves. So, again, even... It, it, the role we have at Skeptic of debunking those claims mm. and showing here's the actual numbers or here's what's actually going on. Sometimes it's effective for people that are not committed, but for those that are already committed to the belief, that's, that's not why they believe in the first place. It's more this poetic thing. It stands for something else mm. that I don't trust authorities. Right. And it might even stand for something that's partly true. Like, it, you know, it makes sense to not blindly trust the government or blindly trust huge corporations because all of these entities do immoral things from time to time. And presumably they don't get caught doing every immoral thing that they do. So you can acknowledge that and then not believe a specific conspiracy theory. But yeah, you know, I I've seen at least I've read a long excerpt from skeptic magazine about nine 11 truther ism and your debunking of that. And I wonder if you ever feel this is sort of a thankless task, right? Because most people don't believe in the 9-11 truther and, you know, conspiracy and roll their eyes if they have the one friend who sort of goes on about it. Um, in, in my case, I have a, a, an acquaintance whose latest conspiracy theory is that uh, the, the trans industrial complex is trying to make people gay by using SSRIs, which has so many separate questionable links all thrown together. But I guess what one of, one of my questions is, do you get people writing to you saying, I was, I was hook, line, and sinker for 9-11 Truther until I read your article, and now I actually understand why the steel beams could melt at, or, or could partly melt at 1,200 Fahrenheit? Or, or is it, do you feel like you're just shouting into the void on these things? Uh, we do get those. I do. I, I don't have a data set for that, but m- more often we hear from people that uh, we're just curious and they just didn't know like, mm-hmm. well, what is the deal with the nanothermite or what does temperature does steel melt at or whatever. But again, one of these mythic truths, again, I guess, you know, in, so in nine 11 truth or circles, there's a debate between the lie hoppers and the my hoppers. So lie, lie hop, let it happen on purpose versus my hop made it happen on purpose. The question is what was Bush's role, W's role in this? Did he, did he know about it and let it happen? Or did he actually orchestrate it? Okay, well, neither one of these are true. But there is a truth in there. I call it cow hop. That is capitalized on what happened on purpose. This is what politicians do. This is what presidents do. Like there was conspiracy theories about Pearl Harbor. Maybe Roosevelt was in on it. Maybe he knew about it and let it happen. And, and they found a few memos, you know, dated like a few months before. So showing, you know, the chat, Japanese are intending to attack American military bases. And they had a list of them where they might attack one of which was Hawaii. So this was uncovered after Pearl Harbor. So it was like, aha, look, there's an intel given to the White House, but it wasn't given to the White House, actually. They had so much intelligence about what the Japanese might do that they stopped sending them all to the president's office because he couldn't read them all and they couldn't process that much information. After the fact, with the hindsight bias, you go, oh, okay, so it was Hawaii. So there's the memo. Mm-hmm. Same thing happened August 9th, 2001. Condoleezza Rice has a memo saying bin Laden is intending to attack the United States on U.S. soil. There it is. Bush had to know about that. No, there was like 10,000 pieces of intel that summer about what al-Qaeda may or may not do here, there, you know, all over the world. It's only after the fact that you go, okay, there's right. the one that we should have paid attention to. Now, of course, what Roosevelt was you know, glad that happened was he was trying to unite the American public into getting involved in the European war because England was hanging on by their teeth before the Nazis. And, and, and Churchill was begging him for support, actual financial military support. And Roosevelt couldn't do it. He didn't have the support of Congress. And so the, and the America Firster movement was pretty strong led by Lindbergh. And after Pearl Harbor, that all disappeared. Everybody said, okay, we're, we're, we'll do whatever you want to do. Okay, we're going to Port Churchill. We're going to attack the Japanese. We're sending troops to Europe. We're in, right? So he capitalized on what happened on purpose. Mm-hmm. And Bush, the same thing. W wanted, he wanted to invade Iraq. 
And even though it was clear there uh, were no weapons of mass destruction, never any evidence that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. And really, uh, Afghanistan was the proper target, and we had already invaded there. So why Iraq? Well, you know, again, capitalized on what happened on purpose. Who could object? Even Hillary voted for the war, for the invasion of Iraq. You know, it's a, it had general support because of what happened. So there's that. Then there's, I mean, you mentioned um, enough true conspiracies. I call this constructive conspiracism. That is, uh, just enough of them are true. And as you rightly pointed out, those are the, just the ones that got caught on. <laughs> Surely right. we're not catching them every time. So there's probably a bunch more. Volkswagen cheating the emission standards in Europe. That's a conspiracy. Watergate, conspiracy, Iran, Contra. Yeah. Cuomo, nursing homes, COINTELPRO. Yeah, they, they, you know, they happen. And I think what there's, there's, you know, isn't another subject I, I wanted to bring up is what's the personality profile of, of a person that gets really into conspiracy theories? Because in my experience, it's never seemed to me to be a problem of intelligence. I've met some of the most intelligent people, you know, people that scare me with how smart they are, where I'm, I'm clearly, you just know very quickly you're in the presence of someone just like cognitively sharper than you but that are all in on some of the craziest conspiracy theories. Right. And, and I, I do think famously there is a guy with maybe the highest IQ in the world that was a total far right white supremacist and the kind of white supremacist that was deeply into particular conspiracy theories. Right. And it seems to me that the part of the mind that is, you know, is tasked with noticing patterns in the world you know, you can ratchet that up to, to 11, but if you're noticing the wrong patterns or you have some, for whatever reason, inclination towards it, you can use all of that cognitive power to just make more and more compelling nonsense. So I wonder if you've noticed like what type of person becomes into conspiracy theories. Yeah. I like to say that belief and intelligence are orthogonal. They're like Mm -hmm. this, they're not related to each other. Except after the fact, once you've committed to a belief, intelligent, educated people are better at rationalizing beliefs that they arrived at for non-intelligent, rational reasons. Mm -hmm. So they're better at looking stuff up and finding, connecting the dots and surfing the net and and making all those arguments you've heard, you know, like nanothermite and super secret, super nanothermite and the speed at which buildings fall. I mean, when when I started investigating the 9-11 truthers, I couldn't believe how complicated a lot of this stuff was, you know, yeah. architects and engineers for 9-11 truth. Like you read their papers, like, okay, these are not dummies. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly they're, you know, they're smart and they have tons of facts. Obviously that's not enough. So the psychology of, of conspiracy theorists, conspiracists, yeah, they're not, you know, overweight 40 year olds living in their mother's basement. <laughs> that, that's a myth with a tinfoil hat. You know, these are normal people. Most of us believe in some conspiracy or Mm -hmm. another, which may be true, maybe not. So just normal people. Different cohorts have different emphasis on conspiracy theories. You know, white, you'd say African-Americans tend to believe, you know, because of the Tuskegee mess and all that and other things that really happened that were really bad. They tend to think, say, for example, during the crack cocaine epidemic, that that was orchestrated by the CIA or the FBI, I forget which one. And now we're seeing with the vaccine shy people in some African-American communities because of Tuskegee and so on. But whites, you know, okay, it's, you know, it's guns. They're going to take away our guns and they're building, you know, Obama's building concentration camps in Texas to put us us, uh, poor white people with guns away and uh, on and on. So different groups have different conspiracies that they believe in having to do with power, mostly power. Who doesn't, who Mm. thinks somebody else has power and who Mm -hmm. wants to get it. Again, the weird reversal with Trump is that almost every losing campaign in history has thought the election was rigged. Somehow there was some shenanigans or something. The -hmm. winners who were also worried about this, the moment they won, they just drop it. Like, oh, no, that was a totally fair election. Weird thing about Trump is he keeps talking about it was a rigged election. It's like, dude, you won. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) You're not you're not supposed to be talking. Anyway, so so quirky. Yeah. You know, then. There, there are differences in, say, just kind of open to new ideas, uh, maybe too open to ideas that could be sort of a gullibility rather than a skeptical element to them. Um, there was an interesting study done called uh, Dead and Alive, and it had to do with 
people that tick the box for th- saying that Princess Diana was killed were also more likely to tick the box that she faked her death and is still alive somewhere. <laughs> well, they can't both be true. <laughs> she can't be dead and alive. And, uh, but, but the consistent finding in that study was that people that are distrustful of authorities or official stories tend to do this across the board. No matter what story you, you give them, they go, yeah, I doubt that. I don't think we're getting the full story on that. My colleagues at Chapman University did a funny story about that very phrasing. To what extent do you think the government has not been forthright in giving us the full explanation for you know, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, blah, blah, blah. And then they threw one in. The North Dakota crack. Well, 33% of Americans said they had some doubt that the government was telling us the full story about the North Dakota crash. What North Dakota crash? They just made that up. They just threw it in there just to see if people would tick the box. So uh, either people don't know what they're doing when they take surveys or they're just are kind of globally skeptical of any kind of authority. Right. And and I, I, I share that skepticism in, in many ways, but, and this is another thing I've noticed is that I've often found I tend to get along with conspiracy theorists up until they start talking about their favorite conspiracy, at which point I'm totally skeptical. But it, it does seem to me, my, my position as a, as a writer has often been that I'm challenging what I view as a mainstream consensus on the topic of race. So yeah, for instance, the idea that I remember when, you know, when um, Ahmaud Arbery was killed several months ago, you see a New York Times op-ed about how it's rational for black people to fear for their lives when they go out on a jog. And that's something I'm seeing in the New York Times, which is, you know, obviously enormously respected, mainstream and so forth. And uh, immediately I, I just doubt this, right? I doubt it from the point of view of common sense, from the point of view of, uh, you know, uh, as well as from the point of view of just being in touch with the data in addition to lived experience, the whole set of, of ways in which people come to conclusions about the world, I very much doubt it makes sense for a black person to fear for their life going for a jog. And, and yet I'm, I'm sort of constantly inundated by this sort of species of beliefs that seem totally irrational to me. And, and that has definitely led to a skepticism, especially with regard to certain issues about which I can, I I know that a place like the New York times is going to reliably exaggerate. I can often get along with a conspiracy theorist because they can sense that I also doubt what the man is telling us uh, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But then it just, you know, the moment you start talking about a specific experience, conspiracy, I, I can't get on board almost with almost anyone because I'm thinking of how many people would have had to keep it silent. You know, that that's a huge factor for me in, in the implausibility of, you know, 99% of conspiracy theories. If it requires two or three people to keep a secret, then I'm listening. If it requires hundreds, then everything I know about human nature and the, the tendency to gossip and how difficult it is to even keep a secret from your friend's friend, right? Just reflect on your own social life. Like how long have, have you been able to keep a secret or how many secrets have been told to you by your friend? Did you know X did Y with, you know, it, it takes about two seconds. It's like, we love gossip more than we almost love food, right? So especially when something as juicy as a huge conspiracy theory, right? That you just can't keep that. Yeah. How many times have you said to a friend, okay, I, I'm going to tell you this one thing, but you can't tell anybody else. Exactly. And they, they do the exact same thing. Yeah, three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead, Ben Franklin. Right. Yeah, I was on G. Gordon Liddy's radio show in the 90s. My first book came out, Why People Believe Weird Things. And of course, he was the, one of the main orchestrators of Watergate, the Watergate break-in. Mm. And uh, he asked me that question. I said, well, you, you're the one who knows about this. And he goes, yeah. The two things he said were the can't keep their mouth shut problem and the competency problem. Most, most bureaucrats are incompetent. You know, the, you know, if you have a dozen of them have to do 20 different things all at the right time, they're not going to do it. I mean, Watergate break-in is a classic example. All they had to do is break into a hotel room, excuse me, and steal some stuff. They couldn't even do that. But, you know, so much less orchestrate world domination for the United States. You know, impossible. Mm-hmm. You just can't get that many people to do those things. And, um, you know, so that. And also, yeah, again, the more elements that have to come together, more people, 
the bigger the conspiracy, the less likely it is to be true. Very specific targeted things like we want to rig this election or we want to aid that political party. This happened a lot in the 70s, 60s and 70s. The CIA was involved in uh, backing certain fascist dictators over communist dictators in South American countries because the fascists were at least friendlier to U.S. business interests, whereas the communists were just going to nationalize our company. So we, we don't want to back them. So we were doing things like helping to rig elections and orchestrating the assassination of foreign leaders until um, I think it was Gerald Ford, who was it Reagan? It might have been Reagan who, who passed that law against you can't assassinate foreign leaders. It was legal before that. I, I like to tell the story of uh, Operation Northwoods, which was a document given to Kennedy by his Joint Chiefs of Staff, so the highest ranking people in his administration, of how to orchestrate a false flag operation to uh, have an excuse to invade Cuba and topple or assassinate Castro. Now, this all came out in 1997 when there was a tranche of JFK conspiracy-related documents released. And President Johnson had actually covered that up, this Operation Northwoods document, in which they said they were planning on things like, well, let's shoot down an American plane that has American college kids going to Cancun or something, and we'll blame it on Castro. And we'll we'll have a, a U.S. jet to dressed up to look like a MIG, a Russian MIG, we'll have it buzz the Miami airport. I mean, they were like a dozen things. We're going to, we're going to assassinate Castro with a poison cigar. Uh, he likes to scuba dive. So we're going to put poison inside his wetsuit and on and on and on. Now to his credit, Kennedy saw this and went, we're not doing any of this. This is insane. We can't do that. You know, he'd already experienced the debacle of the Bay of Pigs operation. So, but the fact that top people in U.S. government are actually even thinking about doing something like that. When you hear someone nutty like Alex Jones ranting about false flag operation, inside job, that's not totally crazy. You know, we have done a lot of things like that. So there are reasons to distrust. Definitely. There's reasons to distrust the character of, you know, anyone with any amount of power. Right. And that's why one of the key points you made is it's, what you really have to consider is the competency problem. It's like, it's not that if you're doubting a conspiracy, it's what I think a lot of people who like conspiracies, what they hear is, oh, well, you just trust the people in power. You just think they're better than they are. You think they wouldn't do that even if they could. And that's not really the argument. It's really, yeah, they, they would probably do pretty horrible things if they could, but it's very difficult. Bill Clinton couldn't even keep a blowjob secret. And he was, you know, the most powerful man in America. Mm-hmm. I'll say there, there was one, you know, sort of conspiracy theory that I encountered recently, uh, many months ago, that that seems pretty compelling to me because it requires maybe at most two people to keep a secret. And that's, I, I don't know if you were aware of the, the book and documentary that came out about the Trayvon Martin trial. Mm. The George no, I don't know that one. Yeah, so it was yeah, this, I know this, this story. Oh, you do? No, I, I know the story of what happened, actually, of right. course, but I don't know about the conspiracy theory around that. Well, it was a, this kooky guy wrote a book and, and made a documentary. And, and I, I just say that because he really is a strange person. Like his, his strangeness just, you know, almost undermines the, the persuasiveness of his arguments. But hmm. basically argues that Trayvon Martin's the the person put on stand as Trayvon Martin's girlfriend was in fact his girlfriend's half sister that was coached into giving testimony by the lawyer because the the actual girlfriend didn't want to testify and so this is something that if a friend just said to me at a bar I would say okay you're you're crazy and and it you know it really matters the way you encounter something so I, I encountered this from Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter talking about it and sort of being persuaded by it on the basis of the evidence. And I know them to, to not be the kind of people that just believe nonsense. So I, I looked at it myself and, and so I can empathize with the position of someone who, who believes something to be true that, you know, even perhaps Wikipedia might say is false. And it, it's worth acknowledging how rarely this happens. Right. But I can empathize with the position of, of being that guy and thinking, you know, something and perhaps being right and wanting to share that with the people around you. And 
and there's a way to do it, but it's, it's tough. In the conspiracy theory is the half sister saying what the sister was, the other sister was going to say anyway, or is it, is it supposed to be a different narrative? Well, so the theory is that Trayvon Martin's actual girlfriend simply did not want to testify. She wanted nothing to do with public spotlight. And so, but they wanted, they needed key testimony to, to implicate Zimmerman in, 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 in a way, because there was just no other, he, he was talking to his girlfriend at the time Zimmerman approached him and they fought and Zimmerman ultimately shot him. He was on the phone with his girlfriend at that time. She wanted nothing to do with it for totally understandable reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this reminds me a little bit of the OJ case you know, because the defense that the defense argument that the police planted evidence again, was not completely crazy. They have done stuff like that. And right. there's a, there, ESPN had a, a really good documentary series on the background to the OJ trial going all the way back to the 1950s and blacks moving to the Los Angeles area from the South and the rampant racism that was there in the police and all the shenanigans that went on 50s, 60s into the 70s. And, you know, it didn't really start tapering down until the 80s, such that by early 90s, there probably wasn't as much, that much racism. But still in the minds of African-Americans living in Los Angeles from where the jury was selected, yeah, that, 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 we, they know that happens. Right. <laughs> and, and so, you know, and again, did they really believe OJ didn't do it? I, here again, I'd go back to my distinction between different kinds of truths. Mm. I think probably they suspected he did it. I mean, how could you not? pretty obvious he did it, but the idea that we're going to say he was not guilty in, in a way is we are signaling, we recognize the racist past of the uh, LA police and, and the court system and California and so forth. And so we're going to, you know, kind of stick it to him that way. It's a different kind of signaling, I guess, virtue, I don't know what you call it, a virtue signaling, but sort of uh, I guess, moral, moral. Uh, yeah. And it's making a particular case stand in for a larger argument. So instead of, yes, did OJ do this particular crime? It's are the police in general racist towards black people in LA in the nineties. And the answer to that question may very well have been yes. The answer to the question of, of whether the cops in LA in the nineties acted very unethically towards the black community, towards black men in particular, and did and and were corrupt. The answer to that could a hundred percent have been yes, and and in in many ways probably was. At the same time that O.J. Simpson in particular, you know, did kill those two people. But I think some people have trouble sort of decoupling a particular case from a larger issue, right? So it simply becomes a stand-in. Yeah. That's why judges have those very specific instructions. You are not to think about this. You are not to consider right. that and so on. But of course, they're, it's not, not an impenetrable barrier they're putting up there. Jurors can do whatever they want in the privacy of their, uh, of their rooms when they're talking about these things. Yeah. All right. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about free speech, which is really the, the main topic of, of your latest book. Can you talk about what motivated you to write about free speech at at this particular time? Well, I've, I've always been a free speech ad- advocate, you know, politically I'm largely libertarian leaning, or at least maybe classical liberal is a, is a little softer term, I guess. And uh, I hadn't written any books about free speech and giving the devil is due is really a collection of essays uh, on a variety of topics, but kind of the main theme, if there was one, it would be, you know, free speech, free thought, you know, open inquiry, you know, science is, I'm a science guy, right? So science is based on this very principle of open dialogue, discussion, disputation, argumentation, conferences, peer-reviewed journals. You know, you have to talk because it's the only way to know if you've gone off the rails. Everybody has ideas and uh, most of them are wrong, including hypotheses, you know, thrown out by scientists. Most of them are wrong. That's why science is very conservative in that sense. Uh, But the only way to find out is if is to put it out there and see what people say and including your and especially your colleagues so you end up with this kind of consensus model of how science works you know over the years or decades of some particularly complex problem scientists are talking about studying researching debating usually eventually they they reach some consensus like yeah we're pretty sure it's that you know, that global warming is caused by 
you know, human activity and here's what we think is going to happen and so on. They, they get a consensus, not everybody. You're always going to find two or 3% hangouts. Big bang didn't happen. Evolution's not true, whatever, but they, they reach a consensus. And, um, and the way that happens, the only way it happens is again, this kind of open conversation, this dialogue that you absolutely have to have. And actually like the, uh, the epigram to the moral art captures that nicely too from J. Robert, J. Robert Oppenheimer. There must be no barriers to freedom of inquiry. There is no place for dogma in science. The scientist is free and must be free to ask any question, to doubt any assertion, to seek for any evidence, to correct any errors. Our political life is also predicated on openness. We know that the only way to avoid error is to detect it and that the only way to detect it is to be free to inquire. And we know that as long as men are free to ask what they must, free to say what they think, free to think what they will, freedom can never be lost and science can never regress. And so the, the reason for the giving the devil's due at this time in 2020 is that we've seen kind of a monstrous reversal on the left. My tribe of liberal supporters of free speech, you know, socially liberal, they've gone the other direction. Very censorious. We have to, you know, combat hate speech with with censorship laws and, and on and on. And it's like, no, that's not the way to do it. <laughs> it's the opposite thing we should be doing. So I'm, and it's gotten worse in the last year since my book came out, you know, in terms of like discussing the trans movement that's kind of kicked up in the last year and a half or so. Is it really triggered by a social contagion amongst teenage girls on social media and in certain high schools and middle schools and in these pockets where, you know, they kind of fuel each other? Or is it really just the real numbers are really that high and, and our oppressive society has, has kept them down? Which is it? These are two hypotheses. So there's only way to, yeah. one way to find out. You got to do the research and talk about it publish books and articles and so on. And, and a lot of people don't, they don't think that. And that's worrisome. Yeah. And, and what's more worrisome is that free speech, I think with each passing day is becoming encoded as somehow a right-wing signaling phrase, which really troubles me, right? Like if the person that sticks up for free speech is going to be read in a room as making a partisan point, that's that that creates a huge problem because it just means anyone who doesn't want to be seen as right wing but does believe in free speech is no longer going to feel like it's smart to to defend that and that's and that's when you get into a situation where you know the majority of Americans on both sides of a political spectrum might be pro a certain value but have the impression that they're in the minority because they so rarely hear people standing up for free speech. That's when you can just, you know, it doesn't take a, a huge movement to actually materially change institutions, right? It could take, it could be 5% of the country that's really against free speech. But if the other 95% feel like they're in the minority or, or they're in a local minority, they're the, if they just feel like they're the only one in their workplace or their classroom, then that's enough. That's right. Yeah. I mean, if you walk around traveling, giving talks at college campuses, for example, which I, before COVID, I was doing maybe a dozen a year or so, you never see riots and, and, and cancel culture and, and protests and fires. I mean, these, these bucolic campuses with students holed up in their dorms or just at the Starbucks or whatever. So, you know, it, no, it's not true that, I mean, the availability heuristic, if you watch Fox News, you think, you know, every campus is on fire every week. And that's not the case, but it doesn't have to be a majority. It can just be a few percent. And that, so you have two effects there, psychological effects, the pluralistic ignorance or the spiral of silence when which people think other people think something. And so they keep their mouth shut or they think, well, I guess I'm the only one who doesn't believe this. So I'll just go along. And everybody else thinks that too, but everybody's afraid to say something when the second thing is in place, which is censorship. Now, in the case of the Nazis, we now know that, uh, you know, they never had a plurality of support from the German people. Most Germans were not Nazi ideologues, at least in the exterminationist sense. They didn't go that far. But Hitler came to power on a minority position and then immediately um, opened up, started the KL system, the concentration camp system and started locking up dissenters and then, you know, canceled the free press and just had, had state-sponsored press. That was it. And everybody could see that if I open my mouth, I, I'm going to Dachau, so I'm keeping my mouth shut. 
and, and, you know, and so on. Well, we don't have that, of course, but almost as bad, <laughs> at least in people's minds, is if I open my mouth, maybe I'll lose my job. Maybe I won't get a book contract. Maybe I'll never get hired again as a screenwriter. Maybe I'll lose my job at Google, whatever. Uh, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And then uh, enough people, the 5% keep, are very boisterous about, you know, if you doubt the thing I just said about trans, if you don't go along with the only position that they'll accept as real, which is that the trans numbers are much higher and that they've just been oppressed and there's no social contagion at all, that's the only acceptable position. Now, I'm, I'm pretty bulletproof in terms of being canceled because I'm older now and I'm fairly job secure. But if I was a young person and trying to get my first book contract or get a job teaching at a university or whatever, just a programmer at Google or something, I'd keep my mouth shut for sure. It, just because, you know, the punishment is there. Uh, it, it's, it's not the gulag, but, but it, it's pretty serious because if you don't have money, you don't have an income stream and you, you're starting a family, you're starting a career and you can't get a job or you just you end up in a job that you don't want you're not trained for, that's a pretty serious consequences of not being able to voice your opinions. So I think we just have to keep pounding on that. It's not, it's not true that, well, back to your, your opening point, the liberal, the left argument is that anyone who defends free speech, that's a right-wing dog whistle for saying, we want to say racist, trans, misogynistic, bigoted things without any consequences at all. And we're calling that free speech. Okay. We have to put a stop to that. <laughs> this yeah. is not what's going on. Right. And, and the way I can prove it's, it, it's not right wing is that I've been alarmed that there are now some laws intended to be anti-woke or anti-critical race theory that have been proposed that have basically, you know, uh, the idea is to ban speech that condemns America as inherently racist or, and some of the language of the proposed laws is so vague that as to, as to condemn or, or ban, you know, anything, any idea that's quote divisive being taught in schools. Right. And these, these are laws that are favored by, by a lot of people on the right as a way of pushing back against the, the encroach of critical race theory into K through 12 education, which is something I, I, I really worry about as well. But the idea that the response is to, to actually pass a law that bans a whole vague domain of speech, right? That's, that's absolutely not the answer if you care about fighting critical race theory, right? That is, that is you, you are becoming what you hate most in that case. Yeah, exactly. No, no, it's, uh, I mean, we, we've said a few things about the New York Times and, but, you know, Fox News, they're just bad. I mean, they're, it's just unwatchable, at least the nighttime, the evening entertainer. I, I don't call them journalists. They're entertainers. It's the entertainment portion of Fox News. Um, you know, the daytime people, are, they're pretty good at Fox. But, but again, at, at any given evening, I'll occasionally toggle back and forth between CNN and, and Fox. And it's like they're reporting the same story. And I'm on like two different planets. Like, what in the world is going on here? I mean, they resemble the stories not at all. I know it's the same. So again, you got to go to other sources and, you know, it's, it's a problem. And I, I do think this is, a, this is a problem that also links back to conspiracy theories is that news has to compete with entertainment and entertainment has gotten really, really good. And I think part of the appeal of, of conspiracy theories is that they're much more interesting than the actual news. You know, the, the actual. Yes. Way. Again, it's a, it's, it's a kind of exciting and sexy. It's romantic to oh, think, course, you know, there's yeah. this, cabal of 12 people that are running the world. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it <laughs> you know, sounds like yeah, the plot you know, of a lot of great movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah I, I, I have this passage from QAnon that I sometimes read about, you know, what if, you know, have you ever wondered why there's war, why there's poverty, why there's crime? What if I told you it's <laughs> one thing that explains it all? What if I told you you can be involved? It's like, okay, I get that. You know, it's like the idea that War is caused by these 12 different variables and you have to run these complex regression equations to figure out which is the strongest one, blah, blah, blah. You know, take economics, you have to take it, you know, a PhD in economics to understand what the hell is going on. And, and even they don't know what's going on in the economy. It's easier yeah. to think there's these 12 guys called the Illuminati that are doing yeah. it. Right. No, I mean, it sounds like the plot of Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, you know, like, do you, why is the world so miserable? Well, this guy's evil. And now let's 
put some amazing classical music on in the background and get him. You know, like that's, that's, that's what people want the news to be. But unfortunately, in a way it's we, scarier you know, to think that no one's in charge. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's very scary. Yeah. No one's in charge. And even the bad guys are incompetent. Right. Even the bad guys aren't in charge. They couldn't be. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's no Dr. Evil. <laughs> right. Well, on that note, can you uh, point my uh, listeners in the direction of uh, where to find your work? Uh, maybe Skeptic Magazine or elsewhere and your, and your Twitter handle? Yeah, yeah. So a Twitter handle at Michael Shermer. Uh, Skeptic.com is the, is the webpage for the magazine, the society. And then MichaelShermer.com for my personal webpage. And Books and so on are just carried on Amazon. I haven't been canceled on Amazon yet, although Good. I've been thinking to see how well these canceled books are doing. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe this not be such a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, some guy that wrote a book uh, critical of the trans movement we were just discussing, Amazon canceled his book. I think it was called When Harry Became Sally. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and then the next thing I know, like the next day, the Wall Street Journal publishes his op-ed, you know, Amazon won't let you read my book, you know, 2.8 million readers. I'm like, okay, way to go, Amazon. You really canceled this guy. No one knows who yeah. he is now. <laughs> so, no, exactly. Again, it's, it's the, the, perennial, the perennial problem of, of cancellation is backfires, right? You make people more interested yeah. in the thing. Yeah. And the, the best thing so to, cancel to, to my I do... Book and let's get the- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some, some, somebody cancel. Well, the, the book is called... The devil, give the devil his due. Giving the devil his due. Giving yes. the devil his due. All right. Yeah, well. I'm a secret, uh, secret right wing bigot just trying to uh, dog whistle my right wing followers. Okay. Yes. So cancel so, that book. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, I hope you get canceled and your sales go up. Um, <laughs> in the meantime, it's been a great time uh, talking to you. Likewise, Coleman. Uh, I'm a longtime admirer of your work and, you. uh, and congratulations on finishing college and can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks, Michael. All right. All right. <laughs> we'll talk to you later. Yeah. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.